Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week, meditation instructor Eric Weinberg discusses Mahamudra in Five Easy Steps, the practice of Tinraizig. Mahamudra meditation is said to be a means of attaining Buddhahood in one lifetime. But how can we, as mere beginners, understand it? Meditation on the form and mantra of the Bodhisattva Chenrezig gives us a method for approaching the truth of the nature of the mind. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. And thank you all for coming. I really appreciate um, that you're taking time to be together with the aspirations that we have being together here. To take some time to um, just sink in to a mind that wants to relax, learn to relax, a mind that wants to love, a mind that wants to gain the skills of compassion is a wonderful thing. So, um, sure, you came for yourself because you want those things, but just in wanting those things, uh, it's a great gift for the world. And um, so I'm very grateful that all of you are here. And um, whether you know it or not, just being here is a great gift. Today's talk is uh, based on the last chapter of the book that we've been uh, covering, Meditation for Beginners. I always think that's funny. Um, a great Zen teacher, Suzuki Roshi, uh, used to say, strive always to be a beginner. So as you can imagine, this is, this is really true. In a lot of Dharma texts, some of the stuff for beginners has actually got the most profound stuff tucked in it. And some of the stuff that's advanced is actually more conceptual and it's uh, entertaining for the mind. This chapter is particularly like the former. It's got profound instructions um, packed inside of it. So I'll be sticking close to the text because it was spoken, written by Bokar Rinpoche, who by all accounts was one of the greatest meditation masters of the last hundred years. Um, but before we start, I want to share with you some news. I got word this morning that one of our Dharma brothers, Craig Schroeder, passed this morning. And so, usually we do dedications at the end. I want to dedicate uh, our gathering together uh, to Craig and to Tanya, um, who've been just incredibly important to us all. And um, I, I personally will miss him tremendously. I got the call this morning because usually I'm one of the people that goes over and, um, and does the practice that we do when somebody passes called POA. And I said, I can't come. I'm doing the Dharma talk this morning. But there's, uh, there's a handful of people there, which is good. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Lamo's there. Daryl is there. Bill Miracle is there. It's all good. Um, and it was interesting. So before I give these talks, I have a practice that I always do. This is one of the reasons I don't show up till about 11. I just stay at home and, you know, I've, since I'm not an enlightened being yet, I have to kind of gather myself, particularly this week, because we're moving. There is no chaos quite like moving. Um, we have, we've been married 40 years, so we have 40 years of accumulations. And, you know, we've gotten rid of very little. Uh, there's a whole Dharma teaching in that as well about um, 
how all the things that you keep around that you think you have because they somehow uh, comfort you um, and because they make you happy or they do something for you that you want, well, it turns out that when you have to move them, they are no longer a comfort and they no longer make you happy. And uh, they're also no longer useful because they're wrapped up in boxes and who can find them for, you know, for however long. So it's like uh, this idea of uh, attachments getting turned on their head is, being, is very present and real to me right now. Um, also, with Craig's passing, it's like that. It's a real pain. Um, in the sense that he was a great comfort to us. He had a tremendous sense of humor and was delightful to be around. And um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of lesson just in the way things are this morning um, for all of us. And for me, I mean, I can only, you can only experience my moving experience vicariously and you should be thankful. Um, but it occurred to me that this is one of the reasons that we, we practice it all. I mean, the main motivation for practicing the Dharma is to be happy. I mean, if it wasn't, why would we do it? It's the reason we do anything. Um, and yet, uh, we... kind of go off without mindfulness, without being mindful about what brings happiness. Um, and do a lot of stuff. Sometimes it's good stuff, or we think it's good stuff. Um, and we get attached to it, and we think that our attachments are out of love and compassion, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. Um, this meditation practice is what this whole book has been about is calming down, getting relaxed enough to get a little space so that through mindfulness, whatever happens, including moves, including the passing of dear friends, happens within a space of awareness in our minds. And because we experience it with this spaciousness, like something that appears in the sky, we can relate to it differently. And um, we can make some choices. And really, the choices, this is what I'm finding this week as I move, it's the choices, good choices, for good reasons, that actually bring happiness. So, you know, you you're in the middle of whatever. It can be um, pleasant or unpleasant. It could be happy or unhappy. It could be aggravating or relaxing. Your mind is always the same. Your mind's nature is always the same. So if you're identified with your mind's nature, that open, spacious awareness, instead of the thing that's happening, then you can work with it in a completely different way, possibly with more intelligence, because you're not limited in, in the way you were limited when you react to things that you like or you don't like. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Okay. So, this chapter is called Mahamudra and Five Points. It's really simple. And guess what? The first point is taking refuge in developing bodhicitta. So, as we usually do, uh, let's chant the refuge prayer together. If you know it, please chant along with me. If you don't know it, perfectly fine. Um, just follow along in your heart. And the thing that we're chanting about, what we're keeping in mind is that 
we are literally taking refuge from this onslaught of appearances and reactions that we call life or samsara or whatever you want to label it. And we're taking refuge in this particularly loving teacher, the Buddha, who himself was able to find refuge in the nature of his mind and wants to share the path, the Dharma, with us. And it turns out that there are more than just one or two people interested. And those that are on that path of resting in awareness for the sake of love and compassion are companions, the Sangha. So we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, what he taught, and the Sangha, all of us who are together uh, walking the path and catching glimpses along the way and, and enjoying each other doing that. Sanje Chudong Suki Chonam La Chang Chu Pardu Dagni Kyam Suchi Dagi Jin Sogi Pe Sunam Ki Drola Pinchir Sanje Drupar Show Sanje Chudong Suki Chonam La Changchu Pardu Dagni Kyapsuchi Daki Jinso Ipe Sonamki Trola Pinchir Sanje Drupar Show Sanje Chudong Soki Chognamla Changchu Pardu Dagni Kyapsuchi Daki Jinso Yipe Sunamki Drola Pinchir Sanje Rupar Thank you. Bokar Rinpoche starts out this chapter by saying that um, the nature of mind cannot be achieved through intellectual investigation. So you could get um, the book of secrets with three locks on it and figure out all the keys and unlock all of them and read it and know all the secrets and even though it was telling you maybe you still wouldn't have any better understanding of what the nature of your own mind is he said that only meditation can help us if that's what we're seeking because meditation leads to direct experience. And it turns out that um, I can verify that um, even though I've only had glimpses along the way, this is true. Um, understanding something is fun and it's a very worthwhile pastime to develop your conceptual understanding of this or anything else that you're interested in. But it won't actually deliver the ultimate result. It's a little bit like um, being an artist. If you go to art school, you'll take colored and design one which is uh, composition, and you'll take color and design too, which is color theory, 
and then color design three, which is uh, spatial stuff like uh, sculpture, 3D. And after you do all that, they'll give you some studio courses. And they set you loose in the studio, and you really know everything there is to know. You know more, probably, than what Rembrandt knew, because that's the way our university system is. We've accumulated much more knowledge over the last you know, three, four hundred years, obviously, and, and they pack it all in there. And you get in front of that canvas or in front of that clay and you try to make something and it's terrible. <laughs> it ain't Rembrandt, you know? It's just not. There's certain experience of how to see that you still have to learn and it's an experience people can give you tricks or let's say meditations to help you learn how to see. And then there's technique that you learn for the expression of what you see. And you start to get a little closer as you practice. Meditations like that too. So it's good to know all the stuff that you learn in color and design one, two, and three because they become like tools in your belt. It's like, now I've seen it. I've learned this technique on how to execute it, and now I can also understand what it is that's going on, and it becomes full. So he does this at the end of the chapter, but I'm going to do it now. The three parts of all these teachings are traditionally the view, which is the intellectual understanding. One of the best statements of the view in Buddhism that I have heard is from Pema Chodron. And she said, your mind is like the sky. Everything else is just the weather. That's the view. The dichotomy, of course, is normally we identify with the weather. It's bad weather and therefore I want to protect myself from it, or it's good weather and I'm happy, instead of realizing that we're like the sky and it's just all happening. So, since understanding that isn't enough to turn our lives around and identify with the sky as opposed to the weather that's moving through it, we do meditation practices which help us directly experience ourselves as the sky. So the second point after the view is meditation, okay? So the view and meditation. And the third is called conduct. Conduct is interesting. Uh, on the simplest level, of course, it means ethics, you know? And that's kind of an imposed from the outside um, in our culture and so on. But once you meditated for a while, you start to have a direct experience of what Kempo Kartha Rinpoche says, uh, what to adopt. In other words, what would be good to do and what to let go of, what to abandon. And it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer because by adopting certain things, you maintain this spaciousness. And by abandoning other things, you can maintain this spaciousness. And the joke on us is always like, oh my, I've been adopting all the stuff that, that contracts me and closes me down. And I've been abandoning all the things that open me up and help me experience this lovely spaciousness. So conduct is applying the uh, what happens to you experientially, experientially in meditation within life. Conduct is what you do and uh, what you adopt, what you abandon, and then how you use what you adopt to actually grow stronger. So for instance, if you're in a place that is not conducive to this state this uh, spacious state of mind. Um, 
you can try to get away from it. That's some conduct. That makes some sense. You want to, you know, that's why a lot of uh, yogis, great yogis, go meditate in caves. They're just getting away from everything. Then there are a lot of great yogis that hang around. And they actually use whatever comes up in a skillful way to become more spacious, more fearless, and more skillful with no matter what happens. That's also conduct. Um, there are some people who do even more, and they go to incredibly horrifying places on purpose to practice. It's a little like lifting weights. So at first, you got to start out with really light weights. You want to you want to find a secluded space, a regular space, a regular time, something you can depend on, and you develop your practice. And then you take it out into your normal workaday world kind of life. And that's a little heavier to lift and apply the Dharma, apply spacious mind in that environment. And there's a little heavier weights, but you're a little stronger. Then you go and meditate in the charnel grounds. You see these yogis that go where they burn bodies in India, and they're sitting in meditation in these places where not only does it smell really bad, and not only are there wild animals there to feed on the burning bodies and so on and so forth, there's all the superstition of their culture about bad spirits being around all that and all that and they so that comes up and they learn to treat all of that as just weather and identify more profoundly with their spaciousness and they become fearless because really what more can life throw at you so you become strong and stable and literally fearless. And you can see that in some of our teachers. You can see it. They embody it. They don't even have to talk about it. I'm just telling you. Because when I, when this occurred to me, was in one of Kempo Karthar Rinpoche's teachings, it blew me away. It was important. Because I was going through a particularly difficult moment of weather myself, and it turned me around to understand that I could use it as practice, as opposed to just trying to get through it without losing my temper or losing my dignity or losing whatever. It's like, it has nothing to do with how I react. It's neither here nor there. It's just weather. Can I practice with it every day as weather? So, that's it. The view, meditation, and conduct. And conduct itself evolves. Um, we teach Tonglen here, compassion meditation. It's one of the most profound, powerful tools to help de develop conduct, r really, no matter what's happening to you. Because you can apply that meditation to anything, good, bad, or indifferent. So. Five, the five points of Mahamudra are first taking refuge and developing bodhicitta. Um, we're taking refuge really from our own reactivity. That's what it is. We have a hard time with our own reactivity. If we weren't reactive, we wouldn't experience anything particularly negative. We'd be happy and um, probably wouldn't do the hard work necessary to tread the path of Dharma. So we're taking refuge from that, our own selfishness and so on. Developing bodhicitta is the perfect counterpoint. So we say it in the same breath. Bodhicitta is the altruistic orientation toward life where you actively engage in the thought. It's not all about I, me, and mine. What it's all about is, is that everything's interdependent. It's really important. 
and because you're connected to everything and everything's connected to you, what more could you want than for the complete liberation and enlightenment of every sentient being? Let's face it. Pick a politician that you really are unhappy with today. If they were an enlightened being, you would be very happy that they were in the job that they've got, right? So bodhicitta is understanding that we're all connected, and so you wish the best. You wish enlightenment, even for your greatest adversary. Um, the Buddha himself had only one, this is the lore says, one person could not be influenced by Shakyamuni when he began his teaching, and it happened to be his cousin, his first cousin and best friend growing up, <laughs> Devadatta, and no matter what he did, um, Devadatta was just kind of going to be his enemy. That can happen. That didn't mean that the Buddha just kind of gave up on him. He still wanted Devadatta to experience this liberation. And that's the way it is for all of us. Um, just because someone isn't receiving our kindness, our love, our compassion, doesn't mean we should just cut them off because we're connected whether or not they receive it. It's just we can intensify our wish that they would receive it because it would be better for everybody if they would. And we can obviously, you know, uh, not be overbearing about it. You can carry that in your mind and in your heart as an attitude. You don't have to, like, um, kill them with kindness, so to speak, you know, I think in the Bible there's this one phrase of uh, Jesus where he says, don't cast pearls before swine. That doesn't mean that you want, you want anything, uh, you don't want to enrich the pig in some way. The reason you don't do that is um, because the pig can't tell the difference between a kernel of corn and a pearl, really, and they'll eat it and it'll just hurt them. They'll get indigestion and cause even more problems, and you'll lose your pearls, which probably have some value. So keep your pearls, but also keep a, keep a good attitude. That's bodhicitta. The second point is visualizing oneself as the deity. This is really important. We are all potential Buddhas. We all are Buddhas to be. We already have Buddha nature. It's not going to get like bigger magically when we get realization. It's like all of a sudden it's like, woo, it just blows up or something. It's not like that. It's all there. It's all there already. It's just covered over. So one of the most powerful meditations that we can do is it's a this is me talking now, and this is unenlightened, so take it with a grain of salt. It's a little like we're tricking ourselves for a minute. It's a little bit of a trick, but we imagine ourselves as the deity. And we inhabit that space. All of a sudden, we're not I, me, and mine anymore. We're Chen Raisi now. And we experience this meditation, these meditations walk us through an experience of being Chenrezig, see? And so we start to get the feel for that. It's a little like when you're riding a bicycle as a kid with training wheels. It's like training wheels. You could say, I mean, training wheels is kind of a trick. You think you're riding a bike, you're really not, you're riding a trike. But eventually you get the feel for it and you can take those off and you can ride. So one of the powerful things in Tibetan Buddhism in particular and the whole tantric tradition is this meditation of visualizing oneself as a deity. 
it's kind of like giving ourselves a chance to have this experience right now or a taste of it, a little glimpse of it, so that we can grow our balance and our strength and be able to take that on more and more as our own Buddha nature becomes more evident. It's got kind of um, a space to inhabit. The third point is praying to the Lama. So when you visualize yourself as a deity, um, you always visualize yourself with the Buddha above your head, totally blessing you, totally protecting you, totally your refuge, totally your example of bodhicitta. So if you're Chenrezy and you have Amitabha above your head, the Buddha of infinite, limitless light, and he's blessing you and loving you, and you're just enjoying that in meditation. I mean, that's how it is, because that's what taking refuge is about, is giving yourself a chance to experience that, so you do. And since you're not you, you've really cleared out everything that could be possibly in the way of receiving these blessings, because you're Chenrezy. Chenrezy is open and clear. It has no more obscurations, that's the point. And neither do you at that point. And you receive this blessing. In that moment, of course, it's like natural communication arises. You want to you want to pray to this infinite source of love and compassion. And that will come. It just comes to your heart. And, um, and you do that. You pray to the Lama. And if you've got words of your own, that's great. And if you don't, in the sadhana texts that we use, they provide some for you. And those are great. In fact, they're incredibly great. And um, it's good to practice our sadhanas in Tibetan, but it's also good on your own to practice them a lot in English so you really do understand what's there because it's lovely and it is very powerful. And eventually, when you get used to it, you blend the both together and it's, it, it helps you along on the path. After you pray to the Lama, the Lama, the Buddha, Amitabha, melts into light and dissolves into you, inseparably. Right through the crown of your head, it's, they say it's like pouring water into water. Just think about this. You have Buddha nature. You're totally identified with your Buddha nature. Buddha has Buddha nature. Totally identified with Buddha nature, dissolves into you, inseparable, like pouring water into water. If you pour a glass of water into a bowl of water, you can't separate one from the other, right? It's, it's just like that. At that moment, you rest. You simply rest. And there have been instructions throughout the book about how to do this. But you rest and become totally aware of your own awareness. Just be aware of awareness. Be aware of your own mind. Nothing else. Even the weather. It comes, it goes, neither here nor there. You don't even pay attention to it. It's nothing. It doesn't matter. There's not much to say about that state. When mind is resting in mind, um, there can be no words. And you'll read this a lot. I rarely see any explanation, so I will explain to you why I think that is. Um, when we use words, we're defining things like watch. That's a limit. 
So by the very nature of limitlessness, how can you put a word on it? As soon as you put a word on it, you've created, you've made it an object. As far as parts of speech goes, it becomes a noun. Part of your life, part of your mandala, it's this thing. Same thing with this experience of meditation. So if you can put words on it, if you can describe it, you don't have it. That's the tricky part. It's really important to understand that because what we'll do, um, according to Tranga Rinpoche, we, this is an uncomfortable state. We actually, at that point, whenever we glimpse this nature of mind, it freaks us out a little bit <laughs> because infinity is big and uh, limitless light is bright and um, clarity is intense. And so we immediately want to start labeling things, okay? And when we do that, we immediately pass back into a dualistic kind of experience of life, of this and that, of limited things, of this is my mind, this is not my mind, which is where we started, if you'll remember. Sky, this is my mind. Weather, it's what's happening. It's what I'm feeling, it's what I'm reacting to. Um, that's dualistic. At this moment, it all drops. That may happen and may not happen. If it doesn't happen, it's no problem. If you keep practicing that way, um, experience will arise. There's no doubt. We've got, I don't know, 2,600 years worth of history and hundreds of thousands of people who have uh, told us about it. And we've determined that they are dependable. Um, so, uh, you know, that will arise. If it does arise, and it may last just like that long, it might not last very long. That's totally okay. And you can simply return to deep rest by saying, Whatever the first thought is, as the instruction in the Chenrezig sadhana says, um, take whatever thought comes, like I might have a thought of a moving van, you know. It could be something mundane. It doesn't have to be like all holy and everything. Um, and you immediately just change that thought. Use your ability to take thoughts and change them and say, uh, take that mental energy and just say, I am Chenrezig and rest in that for a moment. That's the instruction at the end of the sadhana. It's very good. So what you're getting used to is this ability to take whatever comes and then come back to rest in that basic awareness. That's how it'll end for most of us. And we'll go in and out of this thing as we practice over years and years. And over time, slowly and gradually, um, sometimes imperceptibly, we'll develop a little bit. And you don't really notice it right in the moment, but uh, sometimes you're reflecting and you realize, oh, this has been going on. If, it, if this would happen to me 10 years ago, I wouldn't have taken it in like this and you realize you have grown, you are freer, you are more courageous, you know, um, fearless, and so on. It just happens, but it's really quiet. It's not like um, the stuff we see in the movies where the guru comes down from the mountain and, and dumps a ball of lightning on your head and all of a sudden you grow wings and you're something special. It's not like that. If anything, we get more, become more ordinary and yet more powerful all at the same time. So after that is the fifth point, which is dedicating the merit. That's 
that's the way that we end every practice. Um, simply by hearing this, simply by considering these things, simply by practicing this way, um, we accumulate a ton of positive p potential. That's what we call merit. So there's just a lot of positive potential that opens up because we're doing the work to create this spaciousness. It literally is an opening up. And instead of um, holding on to that positive potential for ourselves, we dedicate it to others, to the, um, you know, in general, it, we dedicate it to all other sentient beings waking up and experiencing their own enlightenment, their own positive potential. Um, to their own experience of refuge and so on, just all good things. So for instance, today, we can dedicate the merit of this, um, this morning's teaching uh, to Craig and to Tanya. It doesn't have to be, you know, the grand dedication for the whole universe. It can be, and that's wonderful, but it also can be something specific um, for specific people that you know. And it's a way of employing skillful, very skillful means to really help. I have a prisoner that I've worked with for a long time. Um, he's on death row. His name is Carl. And I remember when I first met Carl, it was probably in 2006. The first thing we did was we taught him calm abiding meditation. Uh, his words were so profound to me. You, I can remember his first thing. So you always ask questions, you know, are there any questions, right? And he says, I know. He said, I, but I want you to know this is the most powerful thing that ever happened to me in my life. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he said, I never knew I could let go of a thought. He said, that's why I'm here. I wish I would have known I could let go of a thought. And then he said, in some ways, I'm glad I'm here because if where I was coming from, I never would have learned this. Kind of interesting. For somebody who is totally a beginner, beginner, that's kind of, if you think about it, a really high level of conduct. He's taking being on death row as his place to experience the spaciousness and liberation. Pretty profound. So, a month later, we go up to OSP and he's there. Well, you already have the uh, instructions. Have you been practicing? Yes, I have. Do you have any questions? He said, yes. He said, um, I feel better than I have ever felt in my life. I said, that's good. He said, but it's troubling me. I was curious about that. I said, why? And he said, because my victims are still suffering so much. They're so full of hatred for me and anger. And um, he said, I wish I could help them. So I said, I think you can in some way. You can dedicate the merit of all your practice to them and to them being liberated from all these negative emotions so that they can enjoy their life more. I said, that would be very appropriate. He said, so we talked a little bit about how he might do that. You know, words to say and whatnot. But you get the idea. And um, I will tell you, three years ago, he got a call from victim services. This is really unusual. Um, 
the uh, sister and niece of his victim, who were the ones that were, you know, full of all this really hateful stuff, um, contacted victim services and wanted to meet with him to reconcile. This is very rare. And part of the reason it's rare is that in order for it to happen, say if you're a death row inmate, um, you know, you're going to maintain your innocence for as long as you can because you may end up having a sentence changed to life in prison. You might, which is way better than getting murdered by the state, by the way, just saying. Um, and uh, other things might happen. They may find something in your trial that was wrong and you may end up going free, whatever. Um, but in order for this reconciliation to happen, you have to sign a full confession of what you did. So you're giving up all your rights, essentially. And he thought about it for a while, and he decided to do it, and they met. I couldn't, I wasn't there, of course. Um, but um, what I, they, they met and then they met again because it was so powerful. Everybody was just in tears. And they saw how much he has changed and grown. And he has changed and grown a lot since I've known him. Um, and um, they made a connection. You know, I don't think they'll probably ever visit again. But they made a connection where, you know, they agreed that they would think about each other and they would pray for each other. And that was meaningful to these people because I think they're devout. I don't know what religion, but I think they're devout. And he had a, a mala that I had given him, real nice one, Bodhi seeds from the old country, you know. He gave it to the niece and um, as a way to be connected. All I can say is, is that even though it's imperceptible and life can drag on, you might feel even like you're in prison. If you keep practicing and you keep dedicating the merit, um, it actually has a profound impact. I, this isn't the only example I can think of, but it is the most dramatic one I can think of. Um, the point is, is that everything we think, do, and say creates causes and conditions. Everything. So if you meditate, which is actually one of the 100% positive things you can do in life, there aren't that many of those, and then you dedicate all the merit, it does create causes and conditions. So this is a very worthwhile thing to do. So, the five points. I'll say them again. Taking refuge in bodhicitta. Visualizing oneself as the deity. Praying to the Lama. It's probably going to feel natural if you do the first two parts right. Meditating when the Lama dissolves into you and you mix inseparably. And then dedicating the merit. Those are what's called um, Mahamudra and five points. I did that just off the first page. That's, <laughs> but I covered all this stuff. I'm just checking to see if I missed anything that I didn't mean to miss. Okay, he does say one thing. He says, um, 
resting on the nature of mind might be difficult for somebody who's just beginning in meditation. Um, so he encourages, if it seems difficult, he encourages uh, meditators to take an object. So in Shine, for instance, we take our breath, but you can take anything in your environment. Say you're in a noisy place, you can take a sound as your object of meditation. Say you're in um, a place that's uh, too dark or too bright, you can take that as the object and just rest in that. And as thoughts come up, let them go and return to, say, the darkness. Just be in the darkness. Thoughts come about darkness, let them go and return and just be in it. So this is all a matter of being where you are. If you need an object, take an object. It's no problem. You can use tastes. You can use smells. You can use sounds. Anything that's coming to you th through your senses. Um, One, one, one sentence I really liked, he said, During meditation, one remains with the mind resting on the chosen object without distraction. The thoughts which may arise are without importance. That's always been, it's simple, but that's always been something that I've treasured, is because my mind is just, infinitely creative of things, important things to think about. Oh my. I really, I mean, you know, I've figured out the mysteries of the universe on my meditation cushion I have. And, and I can spend hours doing it. Um, it's always good to read a reminder like this, and hopefully I'll remember it the next time that I'm on the, you know, seventh level of whatever, and Bokar Rinpoche whispers in my ear and says, that's of no importance. It's a good one. It's an important help. Um, so that's it. He finishes with dedication. We talked about that. There's some time left for questions. I'm happy to try, or comments. Would love to hear any comments or questions that you have. Thank you, Eric. Um, just uh, such a powerful story that you were telling about the prisoner on um, death row. And it, it made me think about a story um, I don't think I've shared with everyone in the Sangha, but that is I got to um, go to the sentencing hearing for the arsonist that burned down Columbus KTC. Yeah. And uh, his name is Ronnie Carroll. He's just a young kid, 19 years old. He was high on drugs and alcohol at the time of the when he set the when the building caught on fire, he didn't mean to do it. Apparently, according to him, but um, uh, it was kind of I think a condition of the conditions and causes were there for the fire to take place. So, um, but what happened? What happened? And uh, so I was invited by the prosecutor to the sentencing hearing to make a statement to um, to the court as well as to to Ronnie. And um, it was an interesting experience, and I just want to call on the power of these teachings to um, open our hearts and our, and our minds. And, um, you know, I think uh, the day of the fire, the, the Tuesday after that fire, we did Chinrezik, and we, we did pray very seriously for the arsonist. He was in our hearts as much as the people who were affected by the fire. And I think that spirit was with me when I had to stand up and, and present. Uh, but before I had an opportunity to present, the uh, prosecutor actually went through all of the crimes that he was being charged with. There was two other arson fires that he was being charged with. And uh, they were pretty serious fires as well, uh, much more intentional than the one that happened at our building. And I had such a wave of emotion uh, during that time I sat in court to listen to this, uh, you know, the, the process to um, to sentence uh, Ronnie. And, um, I was very surprised. I was just this wave of anger overcame me as I was sitting there listening to this. 
And I don't think I ever really had time since the fire to really process exactly what had happened and to see that this one person was really responsible for changing our lives in such significant ways. And, and for me personally, I think um, how to respond to this fire has really consumed what I've done for the last two and a half years. So uh, there was initial this, this wave of anger, um, but then also very quickly that, you know, this let go of uh, that kind of passed. And then just this awareness of his suffering. Um, I think he came from a very difficult upbringing um, the story that I heard on Facebook, someone shared that they did know him, that he saw when he was a young kid, like 14, he saw his, his parents were both meth addicts, and he saw his father stab his mother when he was 14, and he went into uh, foster care with that, and I don't think he ever had a chance to really work through that anger. Uh, but the suffering that he was feeling, and the only way that he could express strong feelings of anger and difficulty was setting these fires in trash cans. That was how he did it. And then he actually, at some situations, actually would choose an object to set on fire when he was angry at a particular person. So uh, clearly, you know, this was a person that had some really tremendous suffering in his life. Um, and so I think the sense of compassion also was the next wave that I experienced as well. Um, when he was asked to make a few comments, uh, in regard, he was offered an opportunity to make a statement to the court. He did apologize, and he broke down in tears. Um, he was so overcome by emotion, he was unable to complete his statement to the court. Um, and so when I got up to speak to the court, um, I did ask them, uh, tell them that, you know, that Ronnie has been in our prayers and in our hearts, um, that we are praying for his healing, his, his well-being. Um, we did encourage Ronnie to take advantage of the programs in the, um, uh, you know, in in the uh, facility that he was going to. There was some counseling that both the prosecutor told me about, as well as the judge mentioned, where he could actually do quite a bit of counseling um, and therapy while he was there to try to rehabilitate and address some of this anger that he's been experiencing. And I did encourage Ronnie to take advantage of those programs. And I did tell him that, um, you know, that we would continue to pray for him and to keep us, keep him, you know, and I did tell him that, that the fire did cause our community um, a lot of turmoil and that we were still in the process of rebuilding our, the home, that there were definitely consequences to his actions. But I would really wanted to let him know that we were thinking of him and wanting to pray for him. Um, so it was a very emotional day, I think, not only for Ronnie, but also for me. Um, but I just w wanted to say that these teachings are so powerful, and, and uh, the idea of, of really having compassion in our hearts and, and trying to lead with that. I think um, I've taken a lot of inspiration for all of you in terms of how you've responded to this situation, and, and I want to thank all of you. Um, and uh, we'll be in a very different place, I think, just as a young man who is on death row you know, I think this has all transformed us in a way that we've never anticipated. And yeah. uh, we can look at difficulty in that way as an opportunity to, to open our hearts and grow. So I just wanted to, to share that story. Thank you, Kim. Well, it is that time. So let's just take a moment and dedicate the merit of hearing and meditating and walking in the Dharma, conducting ourselves in the Dharma. Gather up all that positive potential and goodness and dedicate it to this world that contains so much suffering in general and specifically to Craig that uh, he realizes himself in the heart of the Buddha
and to Ronnie that whatever experiences that he has will definitely help him and heal him and transform him. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. For more information about the Columbus Karma Taksim Choling, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music on this podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.